I'm Peyton Moreland. And I'm Garrett Moreland. And this is Murder With My Husband, a true crime podcast. We bring you a unique perspective on true crime podcasting because I absolutely love it. And I hate it. I cannot comprehend the fascination with true crime. Listen as I venture into the darkest crimes by telling Garrett a different true crime story each week to get his reaction and discuss how we see each of the morbid details differently. Two Point of Views, One True Crime Podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. I love it. And I hate it. Goodbye. This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. The suburban streets of Deer Park in Texas were alive with the sound of children trick-or-treaters one cold, rainy Halloween night in 1974. Timothy headed towards the first house along with his two friends and his father, Ronald. As the children rushed on ahead, Ronald came bounding up to little Timothy waving five giant pixie sticks candies in his face. He smiled giddily and told the children that the, quote, rich neighbours were handing out expensive treats, unquote. Once the five of them arrived back at the house, Ronald gathered up all of the candy and started to distribute it so that everyone's bags were evenly full of candy treats. Both Elizabeth and Timothy were too excited for bed, so Ronald promised that if they got into their pyjamas and went straight to bed afterwards, they could have one piece of candy tonight. Timothy sifted through all of his candy before settling on his giant pixie sticks. He opened it up and took a huge gulp of sherbetty powder, but after swallowing it, noticed it didn't taste very nice. He took a sip of Kool-Aid to help wash it down and ate a little more, but just moments later, he began to vomit. He fell to the floor and went into convulsions. Ronald immediately called emergency services. He realised that the safe streets of the friendly suburban neighbourhood, lit by orange pumpkins and pretend evil ghouls and ghosts, had been infiltrated by a different kind of horror, something more evil than they could ever have imagined. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 16, Timothy O'Brien. The suburb of Deer Park in Houston is full of family homes and green parks. In the late 1960s, The population was around 12,700. The attraction to suburban life was clear. Deer Park had a fire station, a city hall and a public library. 
The city sits nestled in between Pasadena and La Porte, and in the mid-1960s was home to the O'Brien family. Husband Ronald and wife Dane decided that Deer Park was the perfect place to start a family of their own, and in 1966, Dane gave birth to the couple's first child, a baby boy they called Timothy. Just three years later, Timothy welcomed his baby sister, Elizabeth, home from the hospital, and the four of them began a busy and exciting family life together. Ronald and Dane wanted the best for their children, and whilst Ronald had been working in insurance for the first part of the family's life, he didn't really enjoy the work and wanted to do something that would provide better financially for the family. Ronald had decided to sell their first family home and move to a rented townhouse. It was around this time that he also moved on to work for a chemical company before finally settling into a career as an optician. Timothy spent the first few years of his life looking after his younger sister, taking his duty as big brother very seriously. Each year that passed by saw their sibling bond grow and the family unit got stronger. One thing that Timothy looked forward to every year was the annual trick-or-treating trail round the local neighbourhood. The family didn't have a lot of extra money and the candy treats that came from Halloween night were always an exciting surprise. This year, Ronald had gone the extra mile. He'd never been too bothered about Halloween before, but he knew Timothy and Elizabeth would enjoy the event. So this year, as a special treat, he surprised the children with brand new Halloween costumes. Early that evening, the family of four headed to Ronald's friend, Jimmy Bates's, for dinner, before heading out to trick or treat. The night was gloomy and rainy, perfect for Halloween, but not so perfect for one of the Bates children, who didn't fancy heading out in the horrible weather. Dane also pointed out that they shouldn't stay out for too long and asked them to keep their trick-or-treating limited to one block, consisting of just Citation Street and Donorail Street. And with that, Jimmy and his son, and Ronald and his two children Timothy and Elizabeth, all headed out for an evening of trick-or-treating. The group headed out of Jimmy's house and towards the first place. Ronald headed up to the house with the children whilst Jimmy waited on the sidewalk. After a few successful houses, the group reached number 4112, Donorell Street. After a few moments of waiting and no answer, the impatient children headed off to the next house while Ronald waited a few moments more. Just as he was turning to leave, Courtney and Carolyn Melvin came to the door 
and offered Ronald five huge pixie sticks for the children. Ronald made his way back to the street and walked towards the next house where he joined the others, waving the pixie sticks in the air. He smiled giddily and told the children that the, quote, rich neighbours were handing out expensive treats, unquote. Timothy and Elizabeth grabbed the pixie sticks and headed up to the next door. The children's bags were getting full and the rain was getting heavy. So after one final house, Ronald and Jimmy decided that they should all head back home. Once the five of them arrived back at Jimmy's house, Ronald gathered up all of the candy and started to distribute it so that everyone's bags were evenly full of candy treats. There was one pixie sticks left, so the next child that trick-or-treated Jimmy's house was given one. Soon after, the O'Briens said goodbye to the Bates and made their way home. Dane decided to call in at a friend's house for the rest of the evening, so kissed her husband and children goodbye before waving them off home. Both Elizabeth and Timothy were too excited for bed, so Ronald promised that if they got into their pyjamas and went straight to bed afterwards, they could have one piece of candy tonight. Timothy sifted through all of his candy before settling on his giant pixie sticks. He opened it up, but after managing to get a small amount of candy from the stick, it became wedged in the packaging. Ronald helped to loosen it by rolling it in between his hands. Timothy took another gulp, but after swallowing it, noticed it didn't taste very nice. He told his dad, who then poured him a glass of Kool-Aid to help wash it down. But just moments later, Timothy began to vomit. He then fell to the floor and went into convulsions. Ronald rushed to the phone and called the emergency services. An ambulance arrived soon after and Timothy was taken straight to hospital while Ronald kept having to take himself to the bathroom to vomit. The paramedics tried to check him over, but he insisted he would be fine and urged them to rush Timothy to the hospital. Ronald followed closely behind, but less than an hour after arriving at the hospital, Timothy was pronounced dead. A series of tests on fluids from Timothy showed there to be 16 milligrams of cyanide in his stomach and the blood level of cyanide to be 0.4 milligrams, twice the fatal amount. The police were called immediately and both Ronald and Dane were questioned. Dane told officers that she hadn't been out trick-or-treating but gave them the details of everyone who had been there, including Ronald's friend Jimmy and the other children. She also gave an account of what had happened. When Ronald was questioned, 
he came to realise that Timothy had eaten one piece of candy immediately before getting sick and going into convulsions. He told police it was the giant pixie sticks but he couldn't remember exactly which house they had come from. The police found two giant pixie sticks in the O'Brien's house, a further two in Jimmy Bates's house and a final one in a neighbour's house. The pixie sticks were given to medical examiners for physical examination and it was determined that on each one of the pixie sticks, although one end of the packaging had been properly heat sealed, the other end had just been sealed by a staple. Timothy's pixie sticks was missing the first four inches of candy that he had consumed and on further examination, it was found that the first two inches of the other four unopened pixie sticks contained lethal doses of cyanide. The substance in the pixie sticks was a sweet and sour fruity flavoured powdered candy similar to sherbet. This, mixed with the cyanide, wouldn't have caused any concern due to the poison being a colourless crystalline salt, similar in appearance to sugar. Cyanide itself has a bitter taste that creates a burning sensation. The smell can sometimes be that of almonds, although not everyone can smell that due to a genetic trait. Timothy will have died pretty quickly due to the rapid acting effects of cyanide. The poison prevents the cells of the body from using oxygen, which causes them to die. Therefore, the heart and brain become compromised and eventually shut down. It's likely that the symptoms he felt in the moments before he started convulsing were dizziness, headaches, rapid breathing, rapid heart rate and weakness. Even if by some miracle Timothy had survived the poisoning, it's likely he would have experienced long-term heart, brain and nerve damage. After a number of hours of questioning, Ronald finally remembered where the pixie sticks had come from. He realised that all five of them had come from the same house and it was 4112 Donorell Street, the big house owned by Courtney and Carolyn Melvin. He even remembered Courtney being the person who had given him the candy. Police officers immediately made their way to the Melvin's property, where they questioned both Courtney and Carolyn about Halloween night. Officers expected to question the couple, search the house and have a fairly solid open and shut case. However, the reality of the evil lurking in the dimly lit suburban neighbourhood would soon be revealed. And it turned out to be unthinkably close to home. Courtney Melvin told police officers that he had left for work at around 1.30 in the afternoon. 
He had worked until 10.30 at night, before arriving home at 10.45pm, which was much later than the O'Briens had been out trick-or-treating. Carolyn told police officers that she had been giving out candy until around 6.45pm, which is when she had given out the final piece. After that, she made sure not to answer the door, even though she heard a number of knocks throughout the rest of the evening. Carolyn told officers that she didn't see Ronald or Timothy, nor did she see Jimmy Bates or his children. She also told police that they hadn't given out any pixie sticks and they didn't have any in the house. The investigation continued and after corroborating the Melvin family's story, the police failed to find the source of the pixie sticks and in fact found that no other trick-or-treaters who had been on the same route as Timothy had been given pixie sticks. Police suspicion quickly focused on Ronald O'Brien, although most of the Deer Park community, and even some of the police officers, had trouble believing that a father could do that to his own son. But with the discovery of the other four poisoned pixie sticks, the possibility of murdering his other child, his best friend's two children, and a neighbourhood family friend, became even more likely. Ronald's activities over the next few days raised suspicion even within his own family. The morning after Timothy's death, at around 9am, Ronald called his life insurance agent to discuss collecting the money from his son's death. Around half an hour later, He also called his bank to talk about another life insurance policy he'd taken out on Timothy. When the police searched the O'Brien's home, they found a pair of scissors and a knife with lavender plastic substances on them, as well as a purple stain and clear crystal particles similar to the cyanide substance. However, forensic tests that were available at the time failed to conclusively match the pixie stick cyanide to the similar substance found on the knife and scissors. The more the officers looked into the events preceding Timothy's death, the more worrying and damning the information was that they found. In January of 1974, Ronald had joined a programme at Pasadena State Bank which included life insurance policies on each member of his family. Dane had initially told Ronald that the expense of the policies was an unnecessary outgoing that they couldn't afford. Quote, I tried to discourage him, but he said it was the thing to do. We didn't have that much money. Unquote. Just under a year later, Around one month before Timothy's death, Ronald purchased a further $20,000 policy on both of his children, without informing Dane. During the funeral planning, Ronald asked the funeral director about the life insurance claim necessities and was informed 
that he would need a separate death certificate for each insurance policy. After this meeting, he ordered six death certificates. It was a well-known fact that Ronald was experiencing dire financial difficulty. By the time of Timothy's death, Ronald's income was nearly wholly consumed by the family's rent, car bills and grocery payments. He was also in debt, owing around $2,000 to one company, $800 to the government, and he was also eight months behind on his car payments. He had also just been refused two loans, one from a friend and one from a loan operator. Around a week before Timothy's death, Ronald had signed an agreement with the medical branch credit union, informing them that he would soon be coming into a large sum of money. He even told one of his colleagues that he was planning to quit his optician's job in mid-November and that he planned on taking an extended vacation. It was later revealed that just weeks before Halloween, Ronald had gone to a chemical company to buy some cyanide. He asked salesman David Lee Jackson how much it would cost to buy a small amount of potassium cyanide. Quote, he asked if we stocked potassium cyanide and I said yes, and he asked about size and price. He was most concerned about the least priced. Unquote. Ronald had asked various people what the fatal dose of cyanide would be for a human, as well as how it would be possible to detect chemicals in the body of someone who had passed away. He also openly talked to some of his employees about the use of cyanide by opticians. With the overwhelming evidence, Ronald's own wife, Timothy's mother, took the stand at the trial as a witness for the prosecution. Quote, He beat the wall and asked questions out loud why an eight-year-old boy had to die. I did not see any tears. Unquote. Clyde F. DeWitt, prosecutor for the state of Texas, argued clear planning and premeditation and that Ronald not only murdered his own son, but also had a distinct willingness to murder four other children. Quote, By his entire conduct, including the facts that appellant, in such a deliberate and calculated way, took the life of his own child for money and jeopardised the lives of four others, the jury would have concluded that appellant had a wanton and callous disregard for human life. The evidence is sufficient for the jury to have found that there is probability that appellant would commit criminal acts of violence that would constitute a continuing threat to society. Unquote. It took a jury just 71 minutes to convict Ronald, and he was sentenced to death. Although Timothy's story is tragic, it is the only known case of Halloween poisoned candy where a child has died as a result. It was reported in 1970 that a five-year-old boy called Kevin Toston went into a four-day coma 
and then died after eating Halloween candy that had been laced with heroin. It was later revealed that although Kevin did die from ingesting heroin, he had actually found a capsule of it in his uncle's house, which he then ate, assumedly thinking it was candy. It was reported that the initial reports of heroin-laced candy were attempts by the family at protecting the uncle. The urban legend of the poisoned candy, razor-blade-stuffed chocolates and glass-filled toffees has been told to scare youngsters since trick-or-treating began. Unfortunately, Timothy's story is one where urban myth truly met real-life horror. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound designed by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James.